attention to Mr. Hoover's men over on my left with their cameras and their dark suits and their intimidating tactics. Because this is not Berlin and they are not the Gestapo. No, this is Patterson, New Jersey! <laughs> Welcome to episode five of the Plot Against America podcast, the companion podcast for the limited series, The Plot Against America on HBO. I am Peter Sagal, normally the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Today, I have the honor of talking again with David Simon, the creator and executive producer of The Plot Against America. Hello, David. Hi. So this is the companion episode to part five, and this is our normal warning that you do not want to listen to this if you haven't seen episode five on HBO, unless you have a weird masochism. I don't understand why you would do that. At any rate, please go watch it if you haven't, then come back to us. In this episode, we learn about Homestead 42, a program which is intended to relocate Jewish families to the heartland, as they call it. And we also get to see, finally, Walter Winchell, who leads what perhaps you might call the resistance to Lindbergh and what happens when he actually takes that fight to the streets. And, of course, Herman Levin and the rest of his family is in the center of all of this. David, the episode begins with Herman in his car. I think for the first time we see Herman Levin unsure. He doesn't want to walk in with this news, but he does it. And the news, of course, is terrible, that the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company has now asked him to relocate. And we are going to be seeing more and more of this. Bess kind of takes control. She says, all right, everybody come here. Let's talk about it. Leading to Philip's question of what is the KKK? What's a clan? Excuse me? The Ku Dux Klan? Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, that. Are they in Kentucky? No. Yes, they are. They are in Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana and Missouri and all over that part of the country. Yes. What are they? They are a group that doesn't like Negroes or Jews or even Catholics. They, uh, they're certified idiots that you don't need to worry about, Philip. And in fact, to be historical here, the KKK at this point had been receding from American life. It was huge in the Midwest in the 20s and into maybe the early 30s. And it had fallen out of favor. But what we did imagine, and it took very little imagining after the last few years, was that the ascension of somebody like Lindbergh and that kind of rhetoric and that othering of people who were not perfectly American or deservedly American would lead to a resurgence in groups like the case. So the idea that they were and would be experienced in the middle of the country more than they might have been in 1940 was something that we took into account. We're feeling that today. Yeah. Yeah. Bess does something, again, she's starting to take control or at least trying to do what she can to protect her family. She goes to Lionel Bengelsdorf's house and she tries to apologize because she feels that this is vindictive. First, she tells Herman, you will not apologize. And she knows for him to go apologize to Bengelsdorf, it half destroy him. Right. It would knock him down to a point where he might not be able to get up again. So she takes it on herself. She's the one who's going to go eat crow in front of the rabbi. Right. And the rabbi tells them, tells her rather, that they are under surveillance. It might be better for them to get out right. while they can. Of course, Bess wants to get out for real. She wants to go to Canada. And it leads to one of the more pointed arguments between her and her husband. 
This is my country! Not anymore! It is Lindbergh's. It is the Jew-haters. It is the America-firsters. It is the people who chase children down the street asking questions and then deport their families to Kentucky. It's their country. And if we run, if we quit, then they win and they do not get to win. Herman. We have done nothing wrong. Herman saying we have done nothing wrong, he's starting to sound almost pathetic, as if he thinks that's going to make a difference. Right. And the prior four episodes, Herman has been the fighter. Herman is the one who says, not going to happen here, not on my watch. And he's still doing it, but you're beginning to see that he might be wrong about all of that. And Bess seems to have a much clearer view of what's actually happening. It's starting to feel like a Kafka novel. You don't have to do anything wrong. You have to just be a political stumbling block for the people who want to wield power. That's all. There's, there, there doesn't have to be a crime. That is the totalitarian moment. I love that scene. I loved how the actors delivered it. I loved that Bess's anger finally matches her husband's. Yeah. We're ready for it at this point in the piece. And it was the place to really wheel out the phrase America first. It astounds me that that phrase is being given a second life in American politics because, of course, it is bestained by its association with isolationism, with anti-Semitism, with anti-immigrant fervor. It comes from us directly from the Lindbergh moment, from the pre-war moment, from the German-American Bund, from this place where history proved them so unbelievably wrong that you would think the phrase could never again be uttered by a working politician in America. Sometimes I think that the people who are bringing that phrase back either are ignorant of the history, or they know it and are trying to revive it, and I don't know which is scarier, I frankly. don't know which is scarier. In some ways, I think there is an incredible ignorance in terms of the context, because when our ads, you know, the teasers began running on HBO, Breitbart, a lot of the right-wing media, expressed fury that we had somehow created an America First moment, that we'd thrown it into dialogue from nowhere, as if we weren't exactly historically referencing the phrase in its origin as if we had taken it as an anachronism from Trump and delivered it back to our right, little set. reverse engineer to put Trump's right. phrase in Lindbergh's mouth, right. when in fact it's the other way it's around. the other way around. I thought, my God, you guys don't even know your own rhetoric. <laughs> it, it astounds me. Like, what's coming back next, you know? I want to follow Herman for a little while. There's the sequence of scenes with him and his colleagues discussing what they're going to do. They've all been ordered by Metropolitan Life to move to the hinterland somewhere. And Herman, again, is like, we're going to fight, we're going to sue, I'm an American, I want my day in court. In the event that we prevail in court, they would be liable for damages if they go that way. If we prevail. Any lawyer who claims a guaranteed outcome in a civil action is a liar, Mr. Levin. I'm out. I'm in. Fuck Montana. In. This is still America, and I want my day in court. And it doesn't work? The courts don't work. They won't be fast enough, yeah. and you can't rely on them, and they've been politicized. You start to feel him being hemmed in. The parts of American governance that make us special are the individualized rights that are guaranteed regardless of what the majority feel. There is no tyranny in the majority when it comes to certain rights if the republic is functioning. When the republic stops functioning, what happens is a majority of Americans decide we're suspending those rights. We don't need them anymore, or we don't need them for you, or they're not universal, right. or, you, or they can't be relied on in this instance. And here's this moment where 
the common man of our piece, Herman Levin, reaches for those rights right. and finds that they're not really there. One thing you forget when you think the law will protect you is the law doesn't exist. It's the people who are enforcing the law. And if those people are controlled or under the influence of your enemy, there's no safety there. All of what we think of as inalienable rights depends on various people with power yeah. deciding on a daily basis not to use it in the way they could. Yeah. They're pretty alienable. Yes, it turns <laughs> out. We need to revise that. Um, in this episode, I think we visit for the last time with Shepsi, the projectionist. And I just wanted to take a second to talk about what you found and what you did with the media environment of this period. The newsreel was, I guess, their cable news, the only place you can get, like, images of what's yeah, happening. Four or five days late. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and some of them were 24 hours. You could go at any hour, pay your nickel or you'd pay your dime. And you could sit there and you could watch them cycle through, much like the cable news. They would yeah. just keep running newsreel after newsreel. It's the only visual of its day by which you could acquire the world. And Roth rightly, thank God he left us Shepsi as the uh, projectionist that was friends with Herman. Because when we were looking at how to reconcile this quiet parlor drama where the family is struggling, but our eyes on what's happening in the world at large are limited, thank God we had that for four and a half episodes to rely on. When I got to it in the book, I realized, oh man, we're going to be leaning on that. That's the glue that holds what's happening in Europe or what's happening in Washington to the Levin family. And in fact, you ended up using those newsreels for the credit sequence. Yeah. Richard Hoover was the production designer of the first three episodes, and he gave us some behind-the-scenes information about making the news real movie house as true to life as possible. The projectors themselves were real from that period. We found the man who's the expert, whose granddad was a projectionist, and it was his expertise, and they came to set it up and made it run. I mean, they had restored these projectors, and so all a lot of the equipment came from this guy who's been a collector for years. As the production designer on the first three episodes, of course, Richard had a lot of responsibility for creating the world. He was very exacting about things. I have to say that, uh, you know, I had to learn with Richard and with a lot of the people in the art department that if I even expressed some desire for something, it would be pursued, even if I had suggested something impractical. Richard was really devoted to capturing this world. And, uh, yeah, they just had to keep me away from him. Also, newspapers were important. They were important to you personally in your career. I heard that you actually wrote some of the headlines or stories in the newspapers. I always hated prop newspapers because they were so bad. Right. And having worked at newspapers, all the prop masters on all the shows I've ever worked on will, will, will tell you, you know, hey, you can get along with a guy, but man, don't, you know, make sure the newspapers are right. You know. Did you write the headlines? Uh, sometimes I did. I would write the headlines. I would write the first four graphs. I just couldn't abide a bad newspaper lead. <laughs> You know, the first time somebody handed me one, it was, it was, it led with attribution. It was like, according to police, that was like the beginning of the lead. And I was like, you never lead with attribution. Come on. You know, <laughs> I, I sounded like a journalism professor of teaching news writing one-on-one, but I've gotten to the point where I can actually like, they, they send me stuff and I mark it up a little bit, yeah. but yeah, it gets my goat faster than anything. I can understand. Sandy has an interesting change. The last time we checked in with him, he was calling his parents ghetto Jews. He was still into Lindbergh. Less so now, he's become distracted by the ladies. Well, how could that possibly happen to a 15-year-old I can't boy? imagine. It certainly didn't happen to me. It's not what you'd expect, right? I mean, just in terms of, like, television drama, somebody who has a revelation, somebody who has, you know, he realizes the error of his ways, perhaps. No, he's just like, oh, girls. Yeah, you know, in the book, 
Sandy flips from being politicized and in absolute opposition to his parents and committed to Lindbergh and committed to just folks to being politically indifferent. And if you read it, he just falls away from it almost without a sound, with, yeah. a, with a barely a whimper. And the only clue that Roth gives you is that he had started hanging out with neighborhood girls and running around a little bit. And um, Philip, the, the grown-up Philip, the narrator, speculates maybe just getting the feel of a girl's breast was enough to end the political career of my older brother. He says it sort of flippantly. Yeah. I think Roth actually means exactly, exactly that. That's exactly what it was, which is quite Rothian if you think of all of his other work and how blunt and direct he is about sexuality. For our miniseries, it doesn't help us a lot. It's a very, you know, you, you've set up this incredibly powerful rebellion of an adolescent against his father, overlaid it with the important political question of the day, and to open the rear door hatch and let it seep out over a moment of sexual coming of age feels like a missed opportunity. It feels like a comic moment. It feels like it belongs in a different Roth book. It also feels true. I mean, the basements of America are filled with hobbies abandoned by teenage boys and <laughs> girls as soon as they discovered, you know, as soon as That's the hormones right. hit it, in. It, so. No, it's, it, it, it's certainly plausible in the book. I wanted to chase a little more, and I knew that there were things coming that Sandy was going to have to confront, having committed to Lindbergh. By the end of this episode, we see the violence being visited on Winchell as the leader of the opposition. And in the, in the coming episode... That violence is going to grow yeah. and metastasize and threaten the Jews, whether or not they support Lindbergh or not, yeah. are all going to be made vulnerable. So I wanted to see Sandy still engaged and have to confront those moments. And I also wanted to play Sandy's sense of his father being transformed by what is going to happen in the next episode. But we did play that moment. We played the furtive kiss. Yeah you know, between two houses with a, with a girl who he's just sketched and he comes in and he eats the Miltonian apple. <laughs> he takes, takes, takes a bite of the Miltonian apple. And, I missed that. That's, uh, uh, that's he, pretty, he pretty good. He comes in the kitchen, leans against the counter, like as if to say, today I'm a man. Yeah. You know, the, you know, I, I caught this the little is, flourish. But yeah, this is to... my bar mitzvah. Yeah. That, that other thing that happened a couple years ago. Yeah. This is my bar mitzvah. Let me tell you something. I have copped a feel and, you know, I've been kissed. And, yeah. This apple is mine. You said that your writing partner had problems with this particular plot point. Well, I mean, he read the book and he read right over the flippant way. You know, Roth doesn't hit it hard. He has Philip speculating in in a sense or two, maybe it was about girls, but like not not having any real reason beyond that. So Ed read right into the maybe. You know, Ed was as disappointed as I was in, in that it felt like a missed opportunity to do something even more substantial. It occurs to me a lot of times we explain the behavior of terrible men by saying, this guy did not get laid, uh, you know. <laughs> and so why can't we then use the flip side of all of a sudden he does and he sort of gives up his terribleness? Uh, you know, we could have gone that way. Yeah, uh, I guess so. Uh, we, 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 I think we had more fuel going the other way, but we did throw it a nod with that one scene because he then, what we had him do was, he comes in, he bites the apple. He's listening to his dad, listening to Winchell on yeah. the radio. And he addresses his dad in the most affronting, yeah. profane language that a 15-year-old Jewish kid could manage, you know, in that era. That lying prick. How can you listen to that shit? And then just stalks upstairs like his father's an idiot. Yeah. You know, this complete... He, Oedip- he's a man now, as yeah, you say. Yeah, complete Oedipal can... moment. I, you know, I'll deal with you later, dad. Yeah. Like, you know, so, like, we gave him that moment of... We honored the adolescence in that way. 
in the last episode, Philip used his newfound skills of getting around in the bus system to go and watch his aunt in the newsreel theater. In this episode, he goes to visit her at the Office of American Absorption. The look she gives when Evelyn begins to suspect wrongly that Philip has come there on the behest of his father and the calculation with which she then maneuvers to influence Philip back to her point of view. There's a darkness to Evelyn that is now, you're starting to see a calculation. It's almost the proximity to the political sphere and to this world of political maneuver that's starting to layer itself on her. Once you taste power, you start getting used to it and you start doing things that you might not have done before in order to keep it. Exactly. When she decides to send the Wishnows to Kentucky, is that in her mind an act of generosity towards Philip? Is she saying, oh, I'll send your friend with you. It'll be great. Or is it more of a power move? It's, I think it's just genuine, like, I'll make it okay, so you're going to have a friend there. Mm. It, it'll be even easier. She thinks she's doing good. Yeah. There's a moment with her soon-to-be husband, they're not married yet, Bengelsdorf, where he's dealing with some problems with the Homestead Act, and he's having a meeting with our old friend Henry Ford. Secretary, sir, I was told... Rabbi, when I build an auto plant, I build it where I want. And if the workers want those jobs, they come to my plant. Or they don't. Now, if the Jewish people want to keep these jobs, they have the opportunity to move to where the jobs will now be. Or not. That seems voluntary to me. It seems as if for the first time, Bengelsdorf is caught short by what's happening. And he misapprehended how much influence he had. I wanted to see Bengelsdorf go and confront the fact that he was Rumkowski, that he was the king of the Jews, and that he was dealing with a, a level of persecution here that was not benign. Because you don't feel that in the book. You feel that he is pompous and assured throughout. And I wanted to see him cross over to Washington. And I wanted to see him in this malevolent administration, trying to negotiate it with it as if it wasn't malevolent. He's acknowledged that he knows Ford is an anti-Semite. We know that from yeah. earlier episodes. But he literally thinks, I can shape this into something that's good for the Jews. And I needed to see him in a moment of clarity that he has actual enemies and that they're not going to deliver just because he says they should. And I needed to see him struggle with that political reality. I don't know enough about the history of Romkowski, who we've talked about before. He yeah. was the real-life person. He was a member of the Jewish community in the Loge Ghetto, and he collaborated with the Nazis, the occupiers, trying to save as many lives as he could, and in the end, just helped them massacre the entire community. Did he, the real Romkowski, ever have a moment of realization? Was he sent to the camps in the end? Yeah. Eventually, when he was done. Yeah, they had said, done. okay, now it's your turn. The struggle of the court Jew. There is an argument to be made for the proximity to power if you're going to actually talk truth to power. The part that's always been a problem is that proximity is likely there because you're not talking too much exactly. truth. Exactly. It turns out that power doesn't really want to hear the yeah, truth. That's not why they wanted you to stand there. Yes. I thought seeing him actually advocate on behalf of his community, even for this program that is an affront in its basic premise, it humanizes him. He may be a political naif. He may be capable of being used in the most gratuitous ways politically. But he does have a place where he stands and he believes. Yeah. Walter Winchell, thanks to Bengelsdorf's letter, I guess Bengelsdorf still has some significant influence, is fired by the Jurgens Company. And we get to meet him because he decides to run for president. And that leads to Herman attending the rally in Patterson. 
and things go really wrong. I think it's the scariest scene in the series to date because so far we've been seeing it with the perspective of the family. We see the newsreels. There have been some scary things in the streets. There's been Ford's anti-Semitism. Here's violence. And not only is it violence, it's violence under the approval of the state. Because even scarier than the thugs... The police stand down. The police, the police stand don't there. do their job. Yeah. That's Charlottesville. And the reason it's so terrifying, at least to me as a viewer, all of that, but mostly Herman's realization that he's a free country. I'm going to show up. I'm going to stand in this rally and cheer for my candidate. I won't be afraid. I won't be afraid. Be afraid. Yeah. Be afraid, Herman. And the look on his face when he comes home, as I said, the episode begins with Herman in a moment of doubt. It ends with him lost. He has nothing to say. He's not like, I'm angry. He's not like, I'll get him next time. You should have seen the other guy. He's literally beaten, and it's scary. I remember sending that scene to Zoe and asking her open-ended. He comes back. He's bruised. He's bloody. You've been waiting for hours to find out if he's all right. You've been listening to the news reports about the riot. He now pulls up in your driveway. What do you do? Do you hit him? Do you scream? In a series of emails, I watched her work through her imagining the moment in the eyes of Bess, and she's the one who came up with I would kiss him, I would embrace him, I would, you know, acknowledging his safety and, and my love would come pouring out. And then I would stand back and I would say this. You can't do this. Not us. If you do, I will go to Canada. I will go to Canada, I will take the children, I will leave. Just speaking as a father, there is no more terrifying threat than to hear, I will take the children and leave. Mm -hmm. And Herman's got nothing. And that, you know, as I keep saying... he's been proven wrong. Yeah. The America that he thought was there is not there for him. Right. Again, all of the presumed safety valves by which you assert for your individual liberty that you thought were there have been shown to be a mirage. And there's no protection from violence when the violence is happening with the approval of the state. Right. This is a man who called for the police in episode three when he was unfairly removed from a hotel. Didn't help. The police very much enjoyed not helping. Yes. The right to assemble, the right to dissent. Nope, it's not there. You juxtapose the sequence with the riot leading to the end of the episode with the lovely wedding of Mr. and Mrs. Bengelsdorf. There's that moment, I love it because my brother's a rabbi, and I understand what the politics of a congregation are like, where his, I think they're identified in the script, at least, as the president and secretary of the congregation. And they come up and they, Rabbi Bengelsdorf, mazel tov on your wedding, but we've got a problem. Oh, what's the matter? It's just a... The membership? We've been shedding some families. More than a hundred in the last few months. There have been complaints about your political involvement and a feeling on the part of some... Gentlemen, this is my wedding night. Yes, of course. And whatever problems you think you have with congregants who differ in their views, I can assure you that there are more prospective members who will be joining our shul as a result of my work with the government. Now, I will thank you to leave the rest of the evening to its purposes. He still thinks that his prestige and his access to power will save him in every respect. His arc is that of a man who has tasted greatness. He has seen himself in his own light, and he has come to the realization that he is actually important. The scales are going to have to fall from his eyes. But one of the things that we decided to do was differentiate between Bengelsdorf uh, and Evelyn, in that you start to see, not so much in this episode, but there's a little bit of it in this episode where you know she's in the room when Ford berates him and basically 
lowers the boom on him in terms of his own aspirations for his program. And there's some looks on her face. You know, Winona gives you a little bit of like, she's not yet ready to doubt her great man, but she's now ready to take in the notion that what is arrayed against him in yeah. the administration is more formidable than she once realized. Yeah. In the next episode, it's very interesting to see who becomes more politically aware yeah. first. One of the characteristics that she projects is she's never quite comfortable, right. which is very appropriate for this. She's never quite secure. Right, right. Whereas he, he's a little bit too secure for his own good. Yeah. Speaking of the lack of security, the final image of Philip seeing his father come home bloody from this riot. And hearing his mother say, I will leave you yeah. and I will take the children and you know, he will, he will, he's going to lose his father. What we know about all children is the thing they're terrified most is their family breaking up yeah. or losing their family. Yeah. And we end with him hiding in the darkness, just terrified, just trying to get away. Yeah. I thought about an, an image in Schindler's List where they're having a roundup at the camp and this kid runs to the latrine. He hides in the latrine. Yeah. He doesn't want to be caught in the selection. And there's an image in that movie where uh, Spielberg shot where the, the kid is looking up out of the literature trying to see if he has managed to be avoid detection. Yeah. And he just wants to make himself small. Right. Small and covered in shit if he yeah. has to, but he does not want to be selected. And I remembered that when I looked at what Tommy had constructed for the last image. I thought, my God, that shot without dialogue has said everything we need to say about why Philip's point of view has to be a constant throughout all the episodes. The risk and the fear is maximized on the 10-year-old's face yeah. throughout. It's just great. We'll leave Philip hiding from the world, trying not to be seen as we end this episode and think about uh, all kinds of difficulties that are still to come. Thank you again, David Simon, for your time and your willingness to talk about this work. Thanks to everybody for listening. We will be back next week to discuss the finale of The Plot Against America. Part six of The Plot Against America airs next Monday, 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO. My name is Peter Sagal. You can check in with me via your NPR station or app where I host NPR's Wait, wait, don't tell me. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. The episode's lead producer is Emmanuel Hapsis. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore. Post-production and mixing by Elliot Adler and our editor is Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. You can always listen to this podcast or any of the four prior episodes. You can review it and rate it via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, the HBO apps, or anywhere else you might like to go find your podcasts. We'll talk to you next week.